0: All right, everybody. Welcome again. Another episode, Mission Daily. Today we have with us Yaron gulai CEO of Outbrain. Yaron, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, for our listeners who don't know, quickly, can you describe what exactly is Outbrain?
1: Outbrain is the pioneer and the leading content discovery platform. Uh, many of the listeners probably have uh, used it, uh, even if. Uh, unknowingly, we power the content recommendations or the what's next on many of the leading publishers in the world. So places like uh, CNN, BBC, The Guardian, uh, where the technology that they use for recommending other stories, other videos.
0: So yeah, for anyone who's listening, if you're not sure where this is, sometimes after you read an article, you scroll down or maybe to the side rail, you'll see other articles suggested based on things that you might like. That is often powered by Outbrain. Is that accurate?
1: That is absolutely accurate. And uh, Outbrain pioneered the the whole space. There are a few companies that are doing it uh, today, but we invented it about 13 years ago.
0: Now, this is the magic question. How did you come up with this idea? I read from an article that you did with Pando, I believe. You actually wrote about Outbrain in the form of an email, as in you already kind of had a vision for this back then. What were you thinking of at the time? What did you notice in the marketplace, I guess that was missing that let you say, "Hey, I want to do this
1: yeah, so I, I'm an avid reader i've always been um, my my high school yearbook uh, says that i I had this agreement with uh, my teachers and not. <laughs> not interrupting them and they don't interrupt me and sitting in the back and reading newspapers and magazines at class in <laughs> high school. So I, I love reading and uh I always thought there's a certain magic to flipping flipping the pages through a magazine or a newspaper that you love. And you know, the magazine editors didn't talk to me. They didn't interview me, but the but it's still kind of a magical experience to flip through the Atlantic or Wired magazine or any magazine that that you love. But online, it felt like uh, you finish reading something or watching something, and uh, the, next, uh, the next thing is basically chronological order. It's whatever was published before, and it's not necessarily personalized for me, and it's certainly not magical as it is in a magazine. So I set off to start Outbrain as uh, powering the what's next of the web. When I'm done with this page, what's next, what's next?
0: Before you started Outbrain, you actually had a lot of experience building and starting companies. Uh, You're on record as starting networks, Ad Forever, I believe it's pronounced Quigo. Is that correct? That is correct. Now, all of these businesses had exited previously. And so you're a very successful guy. According to your LinkedIn, it looks like you dabbled in some angel investing while working on uh, Outbrain. What, what was unique about, I guess, that problem that you felt dear to your heart that maybe you didn't get to touch at the previous three companies that made you say, hey, I want to keep going?
1: Yeah. So the first company was a web design shop. It's less relevant. But the three the three companies, uh, which, as you said, I've exited all of them. I set off with each one of them to do exactly the same, which is to find a good Recommended article for me to read. It's uh, kind of my lazy way to <laughs> find something interesting to read. And each one of the three uh, companies uh, kind of veered uh, off to uh, you know, with pivots and realities, veered off to uh, different outcomes, uh, which were more around uh, advertising and helping publishers uh, sustain journalism through monetization. Mm-hmm. Uh, so each one of the the next attempts was really just uh Another stab at doing exactly what I set off to do, which is how do we let technology find something interesting for me to read?
0: so you mentioned in your just a, just a moment ago that there were like certain realities that you faced was it was there effectively like was it a technology limitation that was preventing you from building what you ultimately have now built at outbrain, or was it more like the environment or maybe the business requirements were just a little bit different?
1: It's probably a mix, but I think the biggest one is you know I'm not a big believer in building companies uh, that are permanently losing money and just <laughs> living, living off investor, investor funding. Uh, I just don't think it's a good sustainable long-term business. And so, you know, in a weird way, we built startups uh, that were actually trying to be sustainable and generate revenue both for us and for our partners, which are publishers. And that just had a certain gravity where when we found good product market fit, and monetization started working well, especially again for our partners, uh, the gravity of that just, uh, kind of sucked uh, a lot of, or kind of set the direction of, uh, of the companies in, in a big way.
0: I mean, that makes complete sense, but I guess, you know, so here you are, you've, you're at AOL cause, you, uh, Quigo is, is, is now an AOL company. You know, you kind of, kind of hinted at it. Like you had gone through three, three businesses where you tried to land this target, you know, finding the best recommendation engines on the web, but each time the business pulls you another way, was there something fundamentally different in the environment or that you could see it coming that made you say, Hey, this time it's going to work.
1: The previous company, Quigo, which was uh, the the first uh, bigger success, uh, that was started just as the bubble was bursting. So the realities there were pretty, uh, pretty significant. It was almost impossible for us to raise any, any funding for the company. It took me four years to raise our A round. Wow. And then for our publishers, those were pretty grim days because of the whole, the whole environment and internet going away and, and all those post bubble uh, dynamics. So that set a lot of uh, of the dynamics of the business. And then uh, Outbrain, I started in 2007 and again, the world was uh, kind of collapsing 2007,
0: 2008. Yep, and financial again, housing crisis, yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And so, you know, it was terrible timing on, on the one hand. On the other hand, it was perfect timing because, again, we came with a solution that helps publishers that were in dire need for a partner that monetizes well and engages the audience. And we came at the exact time where they needed that monetization uh, most. So, again, the gravity of that, of just uh, being a, a good source of revenue for our publisher partners uh, set a lot of um, of the direction uh, for the company. Now, one of the things I'm most proud of with Outbrain is uh, over the years, uh, past few years, we've generated over nearly $2 billion actually in direct revenue that we sent uh, to our publisher partners. So that's uh, $2 billion almost of uh, journalism that wouldn't exist. Uh, I think many publishers
0: would not be able to to sustain that journalism without what they got from uh, our brain. So what, what do you think is unique about, I guess, human behavior now where, you know, we don't tend to like, it, it, is it just byproduct product of all the other products and services out there? But I agree with you. We don't tend to go look for information anymore. It's more like we get, we'll, we'll view what we're served, but we don't really go seek as much as maybe we used to.
1: Well, I, I think where that, Kind of news feed happens has certainly evolved over the past uh, decade or so. So, in the past, if you wanted the sports news feed, you would go to uh, ESPN and that would be the sports news feed. And if you wanted the news news feed, you'd go to CNN to the homepage and uh, get it there. And uh, what happened in the past decade is basically the social networks and those, you know, the Facebook, the Twitter news feed, uh, those became the de facto aggregators of. Um, of discovery. So it happens a lot less on publishers, which is also part of their their pains today. Uh, But it still does happen. Uh, Most of the content that's discovered by all of us is serendipity. You know, you, you open Facebook or Twitter or whatever LinkedIn newsfeed and you didn't say in advance, here's the story I'm looking to to read. You know, you discovered it and it was serendipitous. So I think the discovery happens. It just moved to other
0: places. Got it. And when you were first starting this, because so, one of the unique things I always think about Outbrain's product is it actually can, it has the potential, of course, to take me off the publisher's site as well, right? It can, it can take me somewhere else. Absolutely. Where, where, where publishers, I guess, reluctant to let you on their, their sites at first, because I'm, I'm trying to think of those early days when you're showcasing this product and publishers have options of what they want to use for ad inventory, right? I can pick from a lot of different companies to say, hey, I'm going to let you place ad inventory on my, on my article, what was it that was unique about yours that made them say, "Hey, this is this is something I want to do"?
1: Yeah. So initially, all the publishers said, "There's no way we're using this um, <laughs> on our site." Yeah, it, it makes for, for for the exact uh, point you made, which is uh, if anyone finds anything interesting, they're going to click off, and we've lost the user in air quote. And uh, what we told them is, "Look, we're at a point of the internet. We're like ten years into this internet thing." And your users most likely understand that other companies have websites. You know, the fact that you're not linked to New York Times, uh, no one's going to stay stuck on your site for 24 hours and say, oh, my God, I I don't know what to do now. I'm stuck here (laughs) on CNN, and uh, I'm not sure that New York Times uh, has a website. That's not what's going to happen. So what's going to happen, if you're not helping them on the way out, They're probably going to close the browser, close the tab, go and open Google or Facebook or whatever it might be and find what they want to find there. And then two things happen. The user experience on Google is great because everything is there and Google makes money. And so what you're doing by kind of uh, sticking your head in the sand and saying, I'm not going to link to anyone else is you're deteriorating your user experience and you're making less money than you could. And I think when they understood that those two points actually make a lot of sense, uh, they they let us on the sites.
0: So what had to happen first? Because in a way, Outbrain's a little bit, you know, not just the technology, but also kind of a marketplace technology, right? Where you have uh, supply, you have uh, advertisers and you have publishers. So it's like it's like a, kind of the chicken or egg thing, right? Which one has to be? In scale, first you need a lot of publishers, so you get advertisers to do this, or do you need a lot of advertisers so publishers say this is a this is a good thing?
1: Yeah, it's so it's absolutely the biggest challenge of any two sided marketplace uh, company, which we are. Uh, I think most marketplaces generally tend to start from the um, the supply side, not the demand side. So in our case, it would be the publisher side, not the marketer side. It's easier to build up supply and. Kind of shortcut your way to supply without having the entire demand there. It's very difficult to do it the other way around, you know. Asking people to order an Uber when there's no cars yet—that's not a great experience. But telling right. telling you know ten drivers, I'll let you drive. I'll pay you to drive, uh, and I'll just pay out of pocket even if no customer ever uh, orders your uh, a ride. Uh, that's very doable. So we started with uh, the publisher side. We started with trying to give each one of them what we called egoistic value. Uh, it's actually a term I, uh, I borrowed from uh, Joshua Schachter, the founder of uh, Delicious, a bookmarking uh, site. Okay. And, and uh, the, the idea with egoistic value is uh, looking at the beginning at what are those few pain points that we can solve for them which would work uh, regardless of, of the rest of the marketplace. So regardless of any other publisher joining and regardless of any advertiser spending uh, money with us. And the the specific thing we kicked off with is there were many blogs at the time and the bloggers uh, many times would would write but would not get a lot of feedback. So they didn't know if their audience is uh, enjoying their blog posts, they wouldn't get any uh, comments because they were very small. And so the thing we solved for them is we said, we'll do the the five-star rating thing, which will just let your audience uh, give you quick feedback on your blog posts. So when you blog, you you will get feedback on whether that blog post was good or not, whether your audience liked it or not. And bloggers absolutely loved it. It suddenly gave them kind of uh, feedback on, uh, on what they were writing. Uh, when we had enough blogs, way more than... Uh, the size of a small local newspaper, we start going to local newspapers and we told them, let's also install on your site and our network is now much bigger than, uh, than your specific uh, publisher. And if we tie all these together, we can start pushing links from each other. So it's true you're gonna lose some of your users to other uh, publishers on our network or other blogs, but we're so much bigger now that we'll send you way more audience than, than you'll lose. And after we got a few of these uh, local newspapers, we started going to the bigger publishers. And to each one of them, when we came, we said, the network is now bigger than the near site. So it's true, you're big, you might lose some users, but we'll drive more to you. And only after we did all that, and we had a robust enough uh, publisher network with small local newspapers, with blogs, and with bigger publishers, only then we went to advertisers and we told them, now our reach is big enough and let's turn this into a two sided marketplace.
0: So there's definitely a lot of legwork that you just kind of mentioned there, you know, building up that the the publisher network and getting readers, of course, and proving data that this is all happening and, and advertisers can benefit from this. I'm curious what what did your team look like I guess in those early days was it were they just people that you brought from you with from previous experiences and workplaces or did you uh, did you recruit like a whole new team to to embark on this
1: it was a mix of both we gathered over the uh first couple of years uh, about 12 i want to say of my uh Quigo team and they're they're still the core of the operating team today it's the skeleton of our Our know-how and expertise has been the uh, ex-Quigo team. So we've been doing this together for almost uh, 20 years now. Uh, And then we we obviously brought in a lot of uh, folks that had no uh, previous experience with us and just brought domain expertise that we didn't have uh,
0: at Quigo. All right. And here's a fun question I always like to ask leaders. Besides money, why do you think that team followed you?
1: I think money is probably the the least of uh, the reasons uh, they joined me, and uh, I don't think of it as uh, <laughs> as follow me. I think with uh, smart folks with uh, the most talented uh, people there are, uh, I think it's about setting together a challenge that's that's worthy, a mission that they believe in, and you know if if we make some money, that's fine. but if uh, if we have a mission that we're excited about and we can see how we can pioneer something and invent something that didn't exist in the world and hopefully turn the world uh, to a better place. I think most smart, talented people are most interested in that. And when we started Outbrain, it was about how do we, first of all, individually, can we make this so that we discover content that's interesting for us? And the second thing is if this does work, then for publishers that are, again, are in dire need of, uh, of ways to sustain journalism. Ah, uh, we'll be their their best partner.
0: No, that's great. So it sounds like there was that, that common thread that the passion to take on this challenge is what bonded the team to say, "Hey, let's let's go after it."
1: Yeah, and again, I think it goes beyond Outbrain. I think for the most talented, smart people, they want to uh, spend their their short time on this planet uh, working on uh, challenges uh, that are exciting and worthy of uh, their time. So I think that's way more important than the money piece.
0: So that brings us to like the let's say today, right? So Outbrain, it's been around now for 13 years. It's grown to a size that it is today. You know, one of the things that a lot of leaders that we talk to talk about is like, it's a lot different recruiting that mindset when you're a much bigger company with more uh, you know, longevity. I guess you're not in the early days, the romanticism of what you're about to change. Now it's more like a company that's operating. It still might have great goals, but how do you, I guess or do you even try to maintain that same culture and vision or are you more focused on it? Has the, has the company kind of shifted its character uh, during that time as it's gotten to the size it is today? Uh,
1: I'd say the answer is both. So in terms of maintaining our mission, our, you know, what we are and uh, what we're striving to achieve, we've always, uh, always kept that. And we certainly, uh, very focused on that. Um, My co-founder and I both uh, served in the Navy for many years, so we're very naval in our terms. Uh, We call our mission for the company our lighthouse, and we constantly talk about about our lighthouse and how uh, we're trying to make the world a a better place. So it's certainly uh, important for for people regardless of the size of the company. The romantic piece of starting a company doesn't exist when you're 800 or almost 900 uh, people. But there's um, different benefits now that uh, we didn't have. You know, When you're small, you're, you're running around meetups here in uh, New York begging uh, <laughs> five bloggers in a bar, <laughs> kind of five <laughs> loser bloggers. Uh, We were begging them to to maybe use our service. And, you know, today, everything our product managers and our engineers uh, do is affecting about 2 billion uh, people every or almost 2 billion people every month and so the the impact and the uh, scale is much more meaningful in the early days you could be much truer and narrower about the vision and say every little thing we do is about the our lighthouse uh, so there's less of a uh, kind of movement from that but you affected almost no one and today i, I think it's exciting for people that like scale and like uh, to have a huge impact not necessarily the same people but uh but it does excite very talented people.
0: And with what you guys are doing now, there seems to be like a new challenge that's being placed upon publishers um, or technology firms in general, right? Since technology is the gateway or the connector between two disparate points, right? There's more pressure than ever to like make sure that you're delivering truth or are you the arbiter of truth or who is to decide like what's publishable and not publishable. It's a big debate today. I guess for you, what is outbrain's stance on what advertisers can be on, where publishers can be, like how do you guys, do you guys take a position where you uh, have, a, have a, per, a preference a company preference, or are you more in support of an open internet where people can publish uh, what they deem is fit? Yeah it's,
1: I think it's one of the most challenging issues and dilemmas uh, of our time. Uh, I, people try to Solve this with uh, angry tweets, and it's not an issue for 140 or 280 uh, characters. It's a it's a very challenging dilemma. Yeah. Uh, at Out, at Outbrain for many years, uh, basically since we started, we took a very clear stance that we have a responsibility on on what gets served and on not serving fraudulent, scammy, fake uh, fake things. Uh, we, uh, I want to say s- about six, uh, six years before the 2016 election, so before anyone was talking about fake news, uh, we found in our network uh, what we understood was basically fake news. We called it fake content at the time. And we decided immediately to cut it out of the network and went very publicly uh, about it, saying we don't think... Our industry uh, should should accept any kind of fake content. Uh, our fundamental currency for Outbrain, and I think for the bigger uh publishing industry is uh, trust. It's not. It's not the dollar. It's trust. Is our fundamental currency, and so we were very clear about that from uh, from the days uh, we started. We we keep tightening our content guidelines, and uh, I think it's important that a platform take a stance. Now, uh, that's not to say it's perfect uh, at scale. Those things are really hard. Uh, identifying what is truth and what is uh, fake and what's the intent of uh, of every individual is very, very difficult. But I think that kind of the hands-off Facebook approach of, well, it's open web and First Amendment, which has nothing to do with, uh, with uh, private companies, um, I, I think is not the right approach. The right approach is we have a responsibility and we have to do our best to... Stay true to that responsibility.
0: Now, different companies have attacked this problem in different solutions, right? You've, some have tried to use, hey, they're going to use AIML to to attack it. Some have said it straight up, like that we have we deploy readers. How, I guess. Like you kind of mentioned, it's not it's not fully solved and it, maybe it's a big issue. How does Outbrain or how do you envision attacking that? Do you, do you think it's got to be a combination of technology and people or is it is it going to be all technology soon?
1: No, it has to be a combination of technology and people and it has been uh, certainly for us. Uh, the reason I think it's not solved yet and I don't think it'll actually ever be fully solved is... It's an evolving thing and the stricter you get and the better you get with uh, filtering out things that shouldn't be on the network, uh, the more sophisticated the uh, the other side becomes and they try new things and new tricks. And so it's a constantly evolving thing and just saying we'll leave some AI algorithms to figure it out, I think is being uh, dishonest about the, the problem. Uh, there are things that technology... Is good at catching certainly at scale, and you need the the technology AI layers, and we we'll do a bunch of that. Uh, but you also need the the more subjective uh, understanding of a human being looking at this and saying, does this is this something something we can stand behind or not, and do we need to update our guidelines or not? And so we've always uh, did a combination of both. Uh, when I mentioned before that we cut uh, the fake content or fake news. Uh, about six years before the world uh, ever thought about this being an issue, uh, that was uh, one of our account managers, a junior account manager that came to me and said, uh, you know, these big customers of ours, they they were spending about 25% or generating about 25% of the company's revenue. And she told me, "I, I think something's not kosher there. We dug into it and we understood exactly what they're doing, which was fake news. And so I decided that same day to cut 25% of the company's revenues, which was an interesting board discussion. (laughs) That's
0: that's a, that's a tough one.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's, that's always the trade off. And that's why, you know, I think you're seeing some of the things that Facebook do. It's they don't want to make that money trade off and we did it, but the only way we could have done it is uh, by having Kate, our account manager come to me and say, this looks fishy to me. We need to dig into this.
0: No, that's amazing. And I think, I mean, it's not quite the same, but I read an article about how Patagonia will link to its secondhand clothes, And it was like, the more honest you are with your products and services so that people believe behind what you stand for, the more likely you'll get more of those types of customers or in your case, viewers that trust. Um, I think that's evident there, right? Because if you're you're helping publishers understand like, hey, listen, we will link, but we only link to the quality, truthful content. I, I think it gives them of mine.
1: Uh yeah, some of them and some of them you'd be <laughs> surprised uh are are bummed by losing twenty five percent of the revenue. And so <laughs> we did get a mix of uh, feedback on that.
0: Oh, okay. So there's definitely still they're beholden to the dollar at that point.
1: Uh yeah, some publishers uh keep telling us, you know, don't be whiners about that stuff. Don't don't tell me about that stuff. <laughs> don't cut <laughs> it.
0: <laughs> okay, well, yeah, hey, we're not we don't live in a perfect place, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So you mentioned something there that I, th- I caught that caught my ear. I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, you mentioned that it was one of your junior account managers that, that found this problem or identified it. And I wanted yes. to kind of hear your ideas on this open leadership or this, your leadership philosophies here because you're, you're now at a company of 800 people. Do you have an open door policy? Is that the type of company you run? How do you know, I guess, how do you prioritize your time?
1: Yeah, so my door is is always open, uh, both the physical door and the virtual door, because we have right. about f- offices in uh, 15 other countries, and so for some of them it's the Slack door. Uh, <laughs> I also try to do uh, every few weeks an open uh, AMA, just a chat for a couple of hours with uh, the entire company, and so people are just attacking me with questions from uh, from every direction. I try to keep a culture of um, making sure. Each one of our uh, teammates is basically a carrier of our lighthouse and our mission and our culture, and I think it's that kind of culture that allows a an account manager, a very junior one, to come in and, and tell me, uh, you know, the customers that are making about a quarter of the company's revenues and are responsible for my commission as an account manager, something's fishy there, and I I want the the okay to see if we need to cut them, and she ultimately decided to to cut them all. And so I think that's all culture of saying this is not a top-down hierarchy of I say what's to and you go and do it, but rather a bottoms up, here's what we stand for, what our mission is, what our lighthouse is, and now
0: act like the CEO. So I got to ask you also a little bit more about, because you, you've kind of, you said beforehand that, you know, your time in the Navy played a big influence on you. I'd like to hear your perspective on what what you learned there, um, just, for your, just for your information also, mission.org is also veteran-owned. So our founders were uh, both served in the army. I'm curious on your side, like, you know, obviously the military is a very different uh, place than entrepreneurship or advertising media. I guess, what did you learn there that you ultimately encourage you to bring those principles forward? for all your companies.
1: Yeah. So I'll start by saying it's uh, I served for seven years in the Israel Navy and in Israel, everyone serves. So when right. you're 18, you go and serve in the army, Navy, air force, whatever it might be. I think there's a lot of value in it because at 18, instead of kind of fraternity parties, I guess,
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's what I was doing. not going to lie. That's definitely having more fun than, uh, <laughs> than maybe I should.
1: Yeah. And you know, instead at 18, you basically, uh, find yourself on on track doing things and leading people in ways that you probably wouldn't be doing for 20 years outside of uh, the, the military service and so when I was uh, 21 uh, or 22 I had first uh, I was a weapons officer on a frigate I had uh, about 20 people that I was commanding that were the weapons uh, department and you're thrown into a leadership position where you're sort of a CEO of uh, of that department, and my co-founder was a, a ship captain uh, at that age, and so I think it gives you a lot of uh, confidence and leadership. Uh, also, as a Navy commander, uh, you're you become good at leadership, but you're not you're managing a team of specialists. So each one of my sailors was basically a specialist in torpedoes or radars or missiles and knew that that area of specialization much better than I ever did. I knew it pretty shallowly, but I knew how to lead uh, a team of uh, people of specialists. And I think those capabilities in building a startup and bringing in great engineers and algorithm people and finance people and putting them together and being a leader, not a micromanager of uh, what they're doing, I think are great skills for building a company leader.
0: So you, you mentioned just a moment ago that, you you know, you're not a micromanager, but I guess how much runway do you think is the right amount of runway or leeway to give somebody to discover, learn, make mistakes? You know, that's something that I think a lot of leaders have a hard time stomaching. Like they see a mistake coming, like they they, they feel like if they micromanage it, they'll fix it. But what I guess is your, thresh, your threshold for leeway?
1: My threshold is probably uh, very much towards the trust by default and let people run their thing, uh, by default. And, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, it was, uh, probably too extreme, but my, my basic assumption when I let someone, uh, run something or manage something is I trust them and, uh, and it's their domain. Um, I, you know, I guess I subscribe to the Reagan, uh, Reagan-esque uh, trust of Verify, which is probably the, the good balance of uh, trust by default, but uh, put the verification points. Uh, the way I try to do it today is by agreeing on the outcome, on the uh, OKRs or KPIs or whatever they may be called. Agreeing on those and then through those, through a shared KPI, seeing whether uh, people delivered on, um, on what we agreed on or what I asked
0: for. Gotcha. No, that's amazing. And then, in, in, in regards to, I guess, Outbrain, where you guys are today, you mentioned before, eight hundred, approaching nine hundred people, uh, multiple countries. You're, I mean, I, I don't know of any publisher you're not on, but it feels like you're everywhere. I'm sure there's plenty of greenfield still for you for Outbrain. I guess, how does the company continue to grow? Like, it, do you have one of those big, hairy, audacious goals, like, uh, like Microsoft did when they first started, where you know every a computer on every desk? Is it Outbrain on every publisher, or how does how does your company just continue to evolve?
1: yeah so as you said, we're pretty much on all the <laughs> publishers that matter in the world and if it's not yes. us it's uh, it's it's one of our uh, competitors that followed us uh, into the market. The way we look about growth uh, into the future is in two in two ways, and we're a two-sided marketplace, so that's why it's uh, two ways uh, first of all, as I said before when you In the past, when you wanted to read about sports, you either went to ESPN or Sports Illustrated or one of those sports sites. And uh, today, if if you go down to the street and ask uh, 10 random people, how do you find uh, sports uh, stories? Probably none of them are going to say, we go to the publisher, we open the homepage, and that's where we uh, look for For stories. So today (laughs) that happens on mobile devices, on swipe lefts, on browsers, in in a variety of different places that aren't uh, on publishers. You discover publisher content, but it happens in in different places. And so for the future, uh, we're absolutely looking to expand from just uh, being with publishers to also uh, being in all those places where people may discover uh, stories. Uh, That's on the Kind of distribution side. Uh, on the other side with uh, advertisers, uh, we work with a few tens of thousands of advertisers that spend with us every month. Uh, but then if you look at the, say Facebook, so advertisers that want to advertise on newsfeed, and I think the last published number is that they have about 7 million uh, active uh, advertisers. So we're on a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction or working with a tiny fraction of those advertisers that clearly want to be on the newsfeed. So there's a lot of room for expansion for us there.
0: No, that's amazing. And just for your information, uh, the world of podcasts continues to grow and we do not have ways to easily monetize or dynamically insert ads. So there's something for your engineers to work on.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a good challenge and I love podcasts. Um, (laughs) I, I think it's basically until Apple decides that dynamically putting ads into podcasts, uh, if Apple doesn't decide that, it's likely not going to happen because of the control they have on on podcasts. But I want to say, you know, being that I'm in the dynamic placing ad business, I do think there's value in not having that ability in podcasts because it forces us in or forces podcasters to do really uh, a higher quality native advertising, which is here's like the book I recommend on audible, or here's uh, a conference uh, I've been to and uh, I recommend. And so as long as that stays genuine and with integrity, I, I think it might actually be uh, a blessing disguise that we can't, dynamically serve ads.
0: Yeah. The, uh, the way, so the way it works now is uh, there's different platforms. If you publish your podcast, like the raw file too, like it'll actually enable you to create a new RSS feed, which you can then link to the different players like Spotify or a uh, stitcher and so on. And then that, that updated file that's housed on one of these other platforms has the ability to dynamically insert ads. We chose not to do that of course, because of exactly what you said it was like, well, who's going to insert it? Like we don't know what it is. <laughs> right right so, yeah so we we declare trade offs
1: <laughs> yeah trade
0: offs <laughs> so how about your like you know we've kind of covered a lot of your professional life you know our audience also loves to hear a little bit about you as a person and so we got some questions for you that kind of taught span like your from your productivity style all the way to actual like who you are you ready mm-hmm. yep. all right so we'll start on the productivity side you're the CEO you have a 900 person company multiple countries what applications are you relying on to make your life easier? Because this is the mat. This is, this comes up in all of our, a lot of our interviews with different leaders is they're always pitch these productivity things, but they don't know if it's actually going to be productive, right? It's just a salesperson on their side saying, Hey, this is going to save you time. This is going to create efficiencies. It's always curious to hear, like, what, is, what are you using?
1: Yeah. So, I manage uh, to-dos in uh, an app I love called uh, AnyDo, any.do. It's a very simple to-do management app. I highly recommend it. I manage uh, emails. So, I guess when uh, I ignore an email enough times and it's it's a very important thing for my counterpart and they send it for the third time, then I know it's important. But I, 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 I do try not to let Email be my uh, my to do list because it's basically I, I think there's a tendency to do that, but then it's the only to do list where I'm the only one that's not impacting the to do list. It's basically everyone else in the world is controlling my uh, email inbox, and so I know I'm sometimes frustrating to my colleagues on uh, not responding quickly enough to emails, but it's my attempt to not not let it be my uh, my productivity app you know, Excel uh, spreadsheets, Google docs for, uh, for important things. So I plan when I plan trips or things like that, it's usually a, a spreadsheet. I'm pretty basic on all that.
0: And Mark Benioff is famous for saying that he basically runs Salesforce from his, his mobile device. Do you do the same or are you a sit down computer guy?
1: I like my uh, computer. (laughs) Yeah, and it's a (laughs) it's it's a desktop actually, not a laptop. So, uh, oh, so you can't bring it home. I cannot bring it home. Well, I do have my mobile phone, but uh, (laughs) the main one main one is a desktop.
0: And you mentioned before you're also an avid reader. What what's the do you read nonfiction, fiction, and what what story recently have you read that you would highly recommend?
1: I read everything. So, uh, (laughs) fiction, nonfiction. I do like. History historical fiction uh, is uh, is an area i 've read a lot recently. Uh, things I recommend so i 'd say podcasts uh, I think the best podcast in the world by far is uh, dan carlin 's uh, hardcore history
0: hardcore history, and
1: yeah. <laughs> Yes. And it is hardcore. Every episode is five, six hours, but it's uh, just fantastic. Uh, I also listen to podcasts at at about two times the speed to two and a half X. Uh, Dan Carlin is the only one I listen to at one X. I just enjoy every moment of it. I don't want it to end. Uh, In terms of uh, books, books that I enjoyed, so, Bad Blood, obviously, was, uh, was amazing to read, especially yeah. being an entrepreneur and startups. Uh, I'd say this year's Bad Blood was uh, Catch and Kill by Ronan Farrow. It was uh, fascinating to read about Harvey Weinstein. And it's mostly about the journalistic side of it, which was interesting and sometimes sad to read. Uh, and then fiction or historical fiction, uh, I'd say City of Thieves. So, it's about World War II. Very interesting.
0: So it sounds like you like to read about some nefarious characters.
1: Uh, (laughs) Wow. I guess that was uh... a little
0: hardcore, you know, a little Harvey Weinstein. So I got my personal recommendation is, um, my personal recommendation for you or any listener is killing Pablo by Mark Bowden. It came out a while ago. And of course this predates Narcos and all that. Um, but first Mark Bowden is a Pulitzer award-winning journalist. He wrote black Hawk down as well, but killing Pablo is about the rise and eventual us involvement in the manhunt for Pablo Escobar. And it's to me, a very fascinating read because, um, uh, you know, obviously he's one of the most nefarious criminals of all time. Uh, it's an interesting one for sure.
1: I'll read it. I'll just, uh, I, now I need to add one recommendation, which is not a nefarious person. So, I'll add, uh, <laughs> yeah, <it's good>.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I'll recommend uh spaceman, which is, uh, one of the uh, NASA astronauts, uh, Mike Massimino. Massimino. And uh, it's a a great story about getting to space.
0: It sounds like you have quite the appetite for reading. Is that how you spend most of your free time to like wind down? Or do you watch television documentaries? Do you do other things? Or is is reading your primary way to wind down, I guess?
1: Uh, Mostly reading. I watch very little uh, TV. I love sailing. So again, ex-Navy, but we've been sailing non-navy ships uh, ever since. So that's also a good reading opportunity. And I love listening to books as well. So that fills my, you know, putting dishes in the dishwasher time is reading time for me. (laughs) Um, but I can recommend a TV show that no one's going to recommend. Uh, and, uh, I'll go for, uh, connections. So this is probably a 30 year old, uh, TV show. It's probably also impossible to find it now, uh, by James Burke, a British, uh, a British scientists, I want to say. And it's basically about chains of connections of how the world got to where it is and all kinds of uh, things. Fascinating. So it's a terrific one.
0: There you go. Audience, you're out there listening. Great recommendations from Yaron. Yaron, did you have a good time on the show today? It was fantastic. Yes. Excellent. Thanks for joining us. Okay. Thank you. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right.